G'day, I'm Peter Rowland, and welcome to Cultivating Passions, a podcast where I get to chat to amazing people who are doing incredible things to shape our future. My guest this week is the delightful Max De Beer, a man who's had a passion for birds ever since he was really young, but also found that he had a passion for foraging for native foods, as well as for running safaris in Africa. I hope you enjoy listening to Max chat about his passion and get inspired to join him on one of his wonderful trips. Max, thank you so much for uh, for joining today and having uh, putting time aside to have a quick chat with us about your passion. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So yes, unfortunately, we're all we're all impacted by the lockdown at the moment, and uh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not not great, uh, not a great environment for for running a uh, wildlife tourism business. But uh, what, what have you been doing to amuse yourself? Well, yeah, it's been um, the breaks have been put on pretty heavily the past couple of months and for the foreseeable future as well. So it's just been yeah, a matter of trying to get out as much as possible and keep active, keep birding, which is what we do most of the time anyway. But it's, yeah, it's been a matter of finding all the local spots and we're up to 89 species on the local lockdown list for now. So I keep, keep pushing that a bit higher, hopefully. <laughs> Very good. And uh, I read uh, one of your tweets a while ago now, but you're up to 52 backyard bird list or balcony bird list i should say what's what's it up to now yeah it's up to 56 now that's yeah getting up with an australian wood duck the other day okay you, you've just nutted me <laughs> I, I i just added mine up last night i was up to 55 so yeah so you, you picked me by one. Ah, oh, the competition's tight <laughs> that's right exactly Okay, so I want to chat a bit about yourself and obviously your background, um, and then yeah, we'll have a bit of a talk about your uh, your company. Um, but first, so you're an avid birder, and you've been birding since uh, since you were quite young. What um, what drew you to become a tour operator? Well, yeah, it sort of happened a bit out of opportunity, I guess. Uh, when I was nineteen, I went to Uganda, sort of finished uni, and then. Yeah, decides deciding on a place to go. My first international birding trip, just sort of solo. Um, settled on Uganda, wanted South America, but the list there just seemed too daunting for a first overseas trip. So I decided on Uganda, and yeah, spent about four weeks there birding. We got just under five hundred bird species in that time. Um, once I returned, I wrote up a pretty brief little trip report and sent it to a few people. And then, yes, had a couple of people ask me to sort of facilitate the same trip for them. Um, they liked what they saw and instead of them researching their own thing, they said, hey, can you yeah, set the framework and we'll go over and then did that a couple of times. And then someone I'd birded with in Ethiopia previously said, hey, we yeah, love the idea of going to Uganda. Do you want to lead the trip? And jumped at that opportunity. And then from there, just yeah, formulated the business a bit further and gone from there. Fantastic. So when did you first realise that you had a passion for for wildlife? Yeah, ever since I was pretty young, go bushwalks with my dad a lot and we'd take family trips to O'Reilly's, pretty famous rainforest lodge up in southeast Queensland. So I was always exposed to the outdoors from a pretty young age. Um, I remember on one bushwalk one day, I think it was about eight or nine, and 
sort of bird on the side of the track and couldn't you know quite work out what it was so followed it a bit to get a better look at it and when we got home sat down with the field guide and flicked through that and found it was a rufous fantail um so i think that was the first moment that i yeah, was saw a bird and actively tried to identify it it's spiraled out of control since then but um yeah it's from there it's just grown with different family holidays at first and different trips and then yeah, just keeping lists of different birds i'd see wherever i went yeah it's flourished from there really fantastic fantastic now you're based in the illawarra uh, and you do a few tours in this local area which i think it's uh beginners birding is that correct yeah birding for beginners so it's sort of yeah the idea behind that um my partner bella since we met's become pretty avid birder as well so for me that was just a whole rediscovery of birding sort of starting from the baseline and just building the different species we see again and then she had the idea of yeah, sort of offering that as a more local tour given anything beyond our state was off limits um so yeah we've just been building that and having introductory birding excursions so just pick a few different sites and take people out and just start from yeah pretty introductory level of just looking in the particular environment you're in what you might find how to find it best way to id a bird different field marks to look for that sort of thing and it's pretty popular so far of course all on hold at the moment but the few that we're able to do everyone loved yeah fantastic well that's a great idea because i it's a double uh, whammy really isn't it so you're getting your you're, you're getting out in the great outdoors you're you're having the opportunity to to, to bushwalk but you're also learning something on the way and and something that's developing into perhaps a passion for the person that's that's attending one of your tours that they want to get better at their hobby and yeah they need the skills and the tools to be able to do that yeah that's um yeah part of the idea as well is hoping to have more birders pop up out of these sort of things excellent now i know you you took on board the government incentive to uh, do the dine and discover voucher what do we call it a incentive is that mm. something that has helped get people out and about? Yeah, definitely. We've had um, quite a few people. We did the um, some mushroom foraging workshops as well and had a fair number of people who attended those, found us through the um, Dine Discover scheme. Even just a couple of days ago, I had another call from someone who'd been looking on that list and found us. So it's definitely broadened the reach of people who might not find us via social media channels Um word of mouth that kind of thing so it has definitely broadened yeah the audience of people and then they just get in touch and sort of narrow down whether it's a general wildlife walk that they want to do or if they're more focused on birds and we've got the birding for beginners for them as well um so yeah it's been a great help unfortunately people can't use it at the moment but <laughs> when it ends, hopefully the vouchers still be valid <laughs> hopefully hopefully you mentioned mushrooms. I, I went on one of your mushroom uh, foraging workshops. It was uh, fascinating. I, I mean, I, I love mushrooms. I mean, obviously, uh, I've never gone out um, collecting wild mushrooms in Australia. But uh, I, I remember as a kid growing up in the south of England that we'd be able to go and pick mushrooms from the local field and take, go back home and cook them up for breakfast. But um, I, I, I sort of don't think I'd be game to do it out here. But with yourself and Bella as guides and, and helping us identify the correct mushrooms to pick. It was a fascinating day out. Yeah, so what what led you to do mushroom foraging as well as birds? Yeah, I guess that's another thing that I've been doing for quite a number of years, just foraging 
in Australia. And then again, just COVID sort of led us to try and diversify and focus on a more local scale. Um, and one of Bella's brilliant ideas was, yeah, what about we look at doing a mushroom foraging workshop? So we sat down and there's you know, a few permits and stuff you needed, but by and large, the pine forest that we did it in, there's a couple of species that are edible and easily identifiable. So the, those pine trees are from Europe. So there's a very long history of those species being foraged there. So there's a lot of knowledge that's been established on easiest ways to identify them, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we sort of put up an ad for the first workshop and it sold out incredibly quickly. And then we just kept adding more as people yeah, fascinated. They just like the idea of foraging for their own food. And I think mushrooms are a pretty fascinating group of organisms for people in general because you do see them pop up on your lawn and then they disappear and they're quite mysterious so it's yeah people I think eager to you know, know where their food comes from but also just interested in mushrooms in general so yeah, yeah. those foraging workshops and it's a big hit short season but yeah worthwhile oh, oh that was I was yeah blown away I loved it absolutely fantastic and as you said like when you're drying them out when you get home it does stink the house out a bit but we've still got a few left over <laughs> from when we went and uh yeah, they make their way into the uh, the odd stir fry or whatever we do. It's very good. Yeah. No, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, no, definitely. Next time you run one, I'll be there. What led to the um, the name Malimbi Safari? Yeah, when I was um, yeah putting the tours into a business and trying to think of a name, um, any variant on anything to do with nature and ecotourism has been taken. So I wanted something that, couldn't be misconstrued for another business. Um, sort of, if you've got green or eco or nature or something in there, there's chances there are a handful of businesses that already have it. Um, and yeah, the name Malimbi, it's a genus of forest weavers from primarily Central and West Africa. Um, so just beautiful birds, pretty tricky to see. Some of them are fairly common, but always up in the canopy. So it's just an interesting group of birds, I think. And yeah, it's sort of, Felt that was a name that at the time no one else had taken. I now found there's another Malimbi tours in Ghana. Um, I bumped into when I was on a tour there. But apart from that, yeah, I was just sort of trying to find a name that wasn't taken and something that if people could remember it, it might stick in their head a bit because it's a bit of a different word. So, and coincidentally, there's a red headed Malimbi as well. So that seemed as well. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are listening, yes, <laughs> Max has a, a full head of red hair. <laughs> <laughs> so with the African uh, connection, do you use local guides and people over there or do you run them all yourself? Yes, yeah, so a big part of what we try to do with the um, international tours is find local guides. We usually have a local ground agent who yeah, sort of drive the group around, um, but also different forest sites, for example, try and find a local guide who lives pretty much adjacent to the forest, um, has the advantage of knowing, they usually know where the target species are and where they've been recently, but also provides a financial incentive for those communities that live right next to the forest to protect it. And they see a real monetary advantage to having the forest there instead of potentially clearing it or poaching it. Um, it's a system that in some countries like Uganda, it's pretty well established. Now they have accredited guides uh, with a focus on having a lot of these local site guides. In other parts of the continent like Ghana, it's pretty informal and you'd usually just have a couple of people from the local town or village who 
know the birds, know the key species for that forest. Um, so we really try to seek those guys out and just, yeah, pay them a decent wage for the day, which sometimes can equate to what they'd earn farming in a couple of weeks. They get paid that in a day or half a day of leading us around. So it provides yeah, quite a genuine incentive for them to conserve the forest or whatever the habitat type might be going forward. Um, so trying to yeah, involve as many local people as we can along the way, um, which, yeah, has mentioned Uganda, the guy I usually co-lead the tours um, in that country with, he's um, championed a lot of on-the-ground training there. So they've established the Uganda Women Birders. It's just encouraging women to come forward and get their accreditation to be a safari guide or a bird guide. So when we've done tours there, we have a couple of those trainee guides come along and join us for a few days at a time just to get a feel for how you deal with, you know, windy tourists and just build some experience for them before they get their accreditation. So it's kind of it's on the job training for them. And yeah, works well for us because we do get yeah a lot of great guides who come on and then you visit a couple of years later and those people have gone through the training and started their own business in some instances. So it's encouraging to see this. Yeah, it does. I think it's kind of yeah, grassroots conservation almost. You're just really putting a monetary benefit to having forests there and it yeah, works a treat in most cases. Yeah, fantastic. That's a, a great model. So what can people expect then from from a tour? What can you can you give us a bit of an overview of go to woe once they booked? Obviously they fly into a destination, I guess. Then what do they expect from that point onwards? Yeah, so the Africa ones which um yeah, it's been a bit of a hassle trying to re reschedule those a few times now. But when we were doing those, yeah, you sort of set the itinerary, which pretty much starts from when you land until when you fly out a few weeks later. Um, so usually first day, we'll pick you up and just depending on what time you leave, that's sort of the arrival day. Um, usually try and pick a hotel that's near Botanic Gardens or a forest patch or something so we can get out that afternoon and just get familiar with some of the common species. Um, and then from, yeah, day two, it's just all go. We're up early, just hitting different sites. Um, most African countries have a pretty good network of national parks. Um, so you often take in a fair majority of those parks and different areas will have various target species. We're not necessarily strictly focused on birds. Um, Uganda, for example, has mountain gorillas and chimpanzees a lot of great mammal life as well so by function of just being out and moving at a slower pace that you tend to do when you're birding we see incredible amounts of wildlife or non-bird wildlife as well so it's yeah pretty much just trying to get as much wildlife as we can from that country within the three usually about three weeks so it varies a bit depending on country and the itinerary but typically two to three weeks and just yeah, we get as much as we can Awesome. And is it uh, camping? Is it um, like, or are you, you set up in a hotel somewhere and then you, you go out to these sites as in like a spiderweb style? Yeah. So usually um, try to have it in comfortable accommodation. So lodges, that sort of thing. Most of the national parks will have lodge within the park or a couple on the edge. So it's comfortable in that respect that you get back to, you know, comfortable bed, a hot shower at the end of the day. A um, couple of places, camping is the only option because it's just too far. You'd be driving a couple of hours each way to get to these forest sites. So 
the Zingana we had to do that was um, camp for a few nights, but most of the time it's yeah comfortable hotels or lodges, and then they're either within the protected area or just on the edge, so it allows you to not have much of a you know, travel each morning. So we start early, have a quick breakfast, and then head out for a few hours in the morning, um, just birding in sort of key sites, and then come back have a bit of a rest during the middle of the day. Usually it's too hot to comfortably bird or look for wildlife sort of drop off a bit then and then we'll head out in the afternoon again usually go into the evening do a bit of spotlighting for the nocturnal birds and mammals and yeah just retire for the night and do it all again the next day fantastic i will have to join you on one of those as well <laughs> when we're back up and running oh love to have you <laughs> so your tour guests where do they come from are they wide-ranging sort of uh, different countries around the world or are they australian-based um, primarily Australian. So the first trip I did was with a group of Wollongong birders um, and I travelled with one of those guys in Ethiopia and then the Uganda trip was with um, yeah, people from Wollongong and then it's sort of spread from word of mouth from there. We've had interest from yeah, American and English clients as well. Um, and then we've had a few tours within Australia, which I've got a, um, a friend in Taiwan who was a bird guide and well a bird guide as well so he facilitates the group in Taiwan and then they came to Australia and we would do the tour here for them that was a different focus mostly bird photography so slightly different to just trying to see as many species as possible they were more focused on just getting really nice pictures of a smaller list of birds um but yeah most of the international clients have been Australian just by function of you know, being pretty small business to start with um this word of mouth spreading here has been enough for us for now. But yeah, a few American clients as well, so spreading the network over there. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a global world these days as far as uh, the internet and um, where people can find you and, and get access yeah. to all this information. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely not uh, taking people from your local community anymore. It's, it's meeting people from the world community. So Yeah, it's very easy to communicate with someone on the other side of the world and get them equally as involved as someone within Australia. So that's, yeah. Now, for me, if I was to start doing something like this, it would be quite daunting for me to, to sort of go, okay, well, I'm going to organise a tour in, a, in another country completely and have it all come together. How do you go about making sure that, you know, obviously things are always going to go wrong, you don't want them to, but the, the nature of the beast, but how do you go about ensuring that everything's... Um, as per the itinerary in a, in a country like that? Yeah, I think it's it helps to have done the itinerary and sort of understand because you can sit back and look online at, you know, look at a map and see how you get from town A to town B, but it's not until you've actually been there and done it that you'll understand that well, maybe 100 kilometres on the map, it could take you six hours to do that if you're there in the wrong season because the roads wash out or there's flooding, whatever it may be. Um, so having a all the itineraries are tried and tested, so we've done them before and just understand the best order in which to do things. Um, you can either go clockwise or anti-clockwise, but the tour could be completely different depending on the way that you do it and just trying to have the days flow as smoothly as they can. Um, having a really good ground agent as well, so finding somebody who yeah, lives in the country, has a lot of experience with tour operating um 
even just making sure the vehicles are up to standard. You see a lot of times you'll be out driving, there's a tourist vehicle that's broken down. It's just a, a cheaper operator, but you do get what you pay for. And so it's just making sure that you find someone who's experienced and making sure the vehicles are maintained and running the itinerary yourself first and just understanding the best way to go about those things. But as you mentioned, yeah, no matter how much planning goes into it, something often does go wrong. Um, and then it's just being flexible and just telling the clients up front that while this is the plan on paper, we'll have to adapt things if needed when we're over there and just making sure that their expectations aren't, you know, it's not as bulletproof as it might seem. We might have to drop one location and move to another one. And we've had to do that before. A um, bridge had washed out and we couldn't get to a particular, a whole region of Uganda. So just had to sort of on the fly while we're driving, just change the plan and yeah, just explain it. Just be as transparent as you can. People are pretty understanding. Um, I think they would rather have a, yeah, an enjoyable day out somewhere different than a horrible day in the place that you plan. So it's just being transparent, planning as much as you can, but just yeah, having a really good network of ground agents with you at all yep. times is really important as well. And having lots of plan Bs. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> do uh, do people need uh, immunisations? I mean, to, to going forward, ultimately, I'm guessing there's going to be a, a COVID passport that people will need to travel internationally. But um, COVID aside, is there a, a raft of immunisations that people need to have? There are, there are a few that, um, you know, different types of hepatitis that we kind of get by default in Australia. Um, the key one for Africa is yellow fever. It's a lifetime immunisation though. So if people have had it before, it used to be, I think, I think 10 or 20 years, that's now a lifetime immunisation. That's the only mandatory one. So when you come back to Australia, they do check that you've got your yellow fever passport with you. Um, and then there are other ones, depending on what area you're going, different seasons, anti-malarials are often a good idea. Having said that, like we're in Ghana and it was quite wet. And I think I saw one mosquito the entire time we were there, we were there for just under three weeks. So things like that, it just depends on the country, the season you're going. Um, but yeah, just talking to a GP beforehand, they'll have a fair list. Some of them are often not quite what you need, but there's yeah, yellow fever is the main one, antimalarials, and they just it helps to have some antibiotics with you in case you get a bit of a stomach bug, which is not uncommon. But um yep. again that's part of the plan is just making sure you're staying in decent places. Yeah. And taking your doxy sick plane with you. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh oh we've got our fair share. I, I shouldn't make it sound like, you know, you're going to a place that you're going to get sick because, you know, in Australia, we obviously have our own fair share of mosquito-borne um, diseases and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I seem to be a magnet for mosquitoes and touch wood. Uh, I haven't uh, haven't come down with anything horrible yet, but I do know of people, <laughs> sadly, people that I know quite well that uh, get quite debilitated by it. So it's always it's always good to take precautions regardless of where you're going. Well, it definitely is. They're on the side of caution and... Yeah. Now you definitely have a, a passion for this. Did you study some in university? Yes, I did a Bachelor of Science and majored in biology. Um, I always knew that I wanted to work with birds and wildlife in some aspect. Um, at the time, I thought it'd probably be more a research point of view. And then it's it's been through opportunity um, that the tour side of things has come up and I've pursued that a bit more. Um, yeah, I've always wanted to just work with wildlife studied as much of that as at uni as i could and then yeah, pursued it from there 
And it's one of those things because uh, it's a it's a you know catchphrase for years like follow your passion and obviously a lot of people don't have a passion like as in a, a directed passion as a, a specified career goal. I, I'm pretty much the same as you, Max. I, I remember my career's advisor at school saying, "Okay, we've got to organise your um, work experience." what job do you want to do? And it was like, well, <laughs> I was whatever I was, 15, 16 years old. And it was like, I have no idea. I know, similar to yourself, I had a passion for wildlife. I had a passion specifically for birds. But, you know, what did I yeah. want to do as a job? Well, hey, I was a bit too young to know that. But as you go through these things, you hone it. So obviously university for yourself would have given you different paths to take as you progress through different years to, I suppose, to narrow down your, your field of interest. Uh, and then ultimately a trip overseas is what's set you on this path to this new passion of being a, a wildlife tour guide. Yeah, definitely. I get, yeah, I guess it's during you, I just knew ornithology was the field I wanted to work in and currently go on a job website and just type in ornithologist because it doesn't quite work that way so it was then just a matter of yeah sticking in that field and just trying to yeah involve myself with it as much as I could and it's worked out pretty well um but yes yeah, so I hadn't have gone to Uganda I'm sure yeah a different path would have come up which I would have pursued with sort of equal vigor but it's just yeah worked out quite fortunately the way it has um again unfortunately COVID sort of thrown it off course a bit but stick with it and yeah come out the other side with a even different view of where it started a couple of years ago yeah exactly it's all it's all about cultivating it as you go along and taking advantage of opportunities as you said so a little bit closer to home obviously you're you're based in the Wollongong as I mentioned uh, Wollongong area as I mentioned earlier how many sites can people expect to to be open to them on your local birding for beginners tours yes we have a about three at the moment. Um, so Mount Kira is one of the key sites. So the Burning for Beginners are three to four hour long workshops. Um, so we just sort of start at a particular point on Mount Kira and then just slowly move our way along one of the trails there, a couple of hours each way um, and just learning as we go. So it's titled Burning for Beginners, but it does have a focus on just, yeah, the particular site's mostly rainforest. So just looking at different mid-strata canopy and what species you might find there compared to what you find on the forest floor and just looking not specifically for the bird but what bird you might find in an area um up in royal national park we do some through the coastal heathlands there and that's a completely different set of birds again and just a different mindset that you need to go into for birding so it's just a matter of trying to yeah, take people who are interested in birds and just educating them on the best way to find a bird and when you do lock eyes on one, how can you then identify what should you be looking for on the bird, the calls, that sort of thing. So it's just a matter of, yeah, really trying to, people often, you know, go on a bushwalk and hear and see a few birds, but not know the next step. So it's really just taking that base skill that people already have of being able to look at things and just taking to the next level and yeah, trying to hone in on what it might be. Um, but you're quite sport in Wollongong. There are beautiful spots all around. Illawarra Escarpment is just a beautiful area and quite diverse as well. Royal National Park's not too far up the road either. So it's quite fortunate that we can take people from the Wollongong area, Sydney, and just bring them into these areas that they've either visited before or seen, but never really looked deeply at what's there. And we had a group of um, students from the University of Wollongong, did Burning for Beginners, and sorry, a couple of antichinists, 
very small marsupial up there as well throughout the day. So that was just another fun thing, you know, looking at like an eastern yellow robin and then an antichina sort of scurried past them. We watched that feed and run around as it did. So it's, and that's things people wouldn't be stopping for these birds ordinarily. So it's just a matter of once you do slow down and look at things a bit more closely, you'll just see other parts of the forest that you'd otherwise just walk past if you're just out for your mandatory exercise or something. So it's just trying to hone it down and just, yeah, slow down and enjoy it a bit more. And I think birding is the perfect way to just slow the pace on any outdoor activity, um, yep. whether you're on a holiday or just, yeah, exercising, you just take it a bit slow and look at what's around you and you see a completely different world to what you thought was out there. Exactly. And and plus, it's important to have someone like yourself uh, knowing where to go. And before we were on air, we were chatting about getting out and, and, and sort of finding different places to uh, do be able to do our exercise in during COVID within our LGA. And the Wollongong LGA goes from Helensburg down to uh, Yalla, uh, and then obviously out west uh, for, for up towards the escarpment there. So how many easily accessible sites do you think people can can sort of venture on even if they don't use yourself as a tour guide or or another tour guide how many easily accessible birding sites do you think um people can expect if they're going to be holidaying or visiting Wollongong when they can yeah well there's dozens I mean the Illawarra escarpment um state conservation area is a remarkable area it's so close to any part of um Wollongong up the coast and there's patches of Really beautiful rainforest there. So like Mount Kemmel and Mount Kira have stunning areas of rainforest. Um, Darawal Nature Reserve, which is towards the northern part of the Wollongong area, is remarkable heathland. It's similar to what um, you can find down in Barren Grounds, but much closer to Sydney. And there's a couple of access points there that were found, and it's just beautiful heathland. Um, some remarkable birds there, southern emu wrens huge diversity of honey eaters um so that's another spot that's completely different to anything else you might find in the Wollongong area and that's just a small patch up there so really depends what you're after I mean there's dry sclerophyll forest towards the top of the escarpment lush rainforest gullies almost anywhere you look and then right through the heathland even Pucky's reserve which is a pretty busy spot near the heart of Wollongong but that's got an incredible diversity of birds there as well and just very accessible so you can do that in a sort of one hour walk through there and you see a couple of species of fairy wrens and loads of other birds and they're quite habituated to people so yeah just Google Maps is your best friend in this instance and we just sort of scroll in on an area and have a look and it's a trail there and off you go. I must admit uh, when when lockdown started this time around my wife and I did the similar sort of thing we jumped on and you know, walking trails near us sort of thing and jumped onto the, the local government guides and we discovered two or three new ones and, yeah, fantastic what's what's out there if you if you look because it's the nature of the beast. We have a few days off. Where can we go? And it's normally going to, you know, further down the coast or up the coast or out west somewhere. But um, when you're forced to, to sort of stick within your, your own local government area or your own area, it's incredible how many great little spots there are to go that you can have a one-hour walk or a two-hour walk and, yeah, really get the best out of your local area. Yeah, we've filled many days with just finding even like Sublum Point, which is a pretty popular spot here, but then you get to the top of there and there's other trails that branch off. So something that on face value might be a one or two hour walk, you can pretty easily stretch it out into a half day excursion. And there's just, yeah, remarkable wildlife wherever you go, no matter how busy the track is, there's birds around. And we've you know, found a pilot bird up towards the top, which is a 
pretty rare bird this region and it's just yeah right on the track people walking past so even the busy spots yeah can sometimes work in your favor because the birds are there and they just over time become used to people and yeah, yeah remarkable experiences wherever we've gone okay what what gear do people need to get out and uh get bird watching oh you can spend as much money as you like on this pursuit as i've discovered but i think even without binoculars binoculars are probably the most obvious tool for a birder but just starting at first with yeah, just taking it slow and if you do sit quietly the birds will often come towards you if you're lucky and get a mixed flock of five or six species moving past you can get remarkable views just you know without any sort of optic equipment um a really good field guide is incredibly helpful as well so that's one thing to be able to see a bird really well but if you can't then identify that then it doesn't matter if you've got binoculars or a camera or whatever it might be so i think a field guide is the go-to thing um so the australian bird guide for australia is in my opinion the best one it's got the best illustrations which really do help um some of the other guides the illustrations are a bit off um but even photographic guides are great as well they can give you different perspectives than what you might see in a field guide um so i might be able to recommend a couple there peter but yeah i think a good field guide and then if people are enjoying it moving up to a pair of binoculars um which just allows you to get that much more detail on the bird you're looking at. Okay. And then, of course, you can go as far as you like. I know that a lot of people have this, um, you know, you jump out and grab a 10 by 50s or 8 by 40s or whatever. What, 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 what do you recommend for someone just starting out? If you're starting out, I think the um, 8 times magnification, so like an 8 by 42 would be best. Um, from my experience, a few people who have started with 10 times find it a bit shaky. So if you not used to holding binoculars, it can be a bit easier to have slightly lower magnification just in terms of focusing on a bird. It's a bit easier than if you go to the 10 times, it's that you need to be that much more accurate to really get the bird in frame and be able to see it there. So I think starting at something like 8 by 42 is good. You get less sort of vibration as well when you start using those. Um, I reckon 10 times magnification is probably the most ideal all-round one. Um, anything bigger than that, it starts to get a bit hard to really hold it in focus if you're in forest and something's quite close you're not going to need 12 times or anything so probably starting out 8 by 42 is ideal and then moving up to something 10 by 10 by 42 is the next one i thought i'd go for fantastic once lockdown's finished where can people find out uh, a bit more about what you do and and uh, maybe jump on one of your tours yeah we go to um limbysafaris.com and we have all the tours up there I'll yeah, advertise things on my personal Instagram page as well. That's at Max DeBeer. And then, yeah, we'll just start releasing some more dates. Once we know when this lock ends, we've got a number of tours that are just waiting for beginners workshops that are postponed. So we'll just release new dates when we can and keep going from there. Into next year, we'll have uh, yeah, the mushroom foraging will be back. So it starts late March, early April. We'll run for a couple of months with that. So, yeah, just hop on the website and everything will be up there. Okay, well, I'll put some links to that. Uh, Look forward to having in, a few more people out. Yeah, definitely. That's right, getting people out and about and, uh, yeah, enjoying our, our wonderful wild world. But before we go, before we wrap up, I've got uh, a quick couple of questions for you. So, favourite bird? Oh, too tricky. The one I haven't seen yet. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. The next one on the list. And, uh, well, that was going to be my next question, which is yeah. the one that you really want to see that you haven't yet. Oh, God, again, that's a tricky one. Um, oh, my God. It's too many going through my head. 
I think the big one for my Australia list would be um, a grey falcon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very elusive outback bird. Um, tough to track down. So that yeah, that can be top of the Australia target list for now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds good. I've been lucky. I've seen one of those, but that was southwest oh. southwest in <laughs> Queensland, but. When uh, I was jumping, uh, chatting to a few friends, well, this will be a few months ago now indeed, but uh, I think there's a, a nesting pair of grey falcons out uh, towards uh, Charleville Way, I think, in, in southwestern Queensland. So, uh, so yeah, so I might, uh, I might have to share that location with you, mate, so you know where to go. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, Maxwell. So wonderful to hear you chat about your passion. You obviously uh, have uh, a, a great little business there and something that people can really, really learn from uh, by joining on one of your tours. And, uh, yeah, I just really want to thank you for taking the time out this morning. No, thank you for the opportunity. I think something more people, hopefully we can get more people involved in it because it just has yeah, greater appreciation for nature is all that we need at the moment. It's more people who yeah, care about what's out there is the goal. And also benefiting local economies as well, which is uh, an absolutely wonderful thing to be able to do as well. So, Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of flow and effects and it's all yeah, beneficial to a lot of people. Great. Well, you know, do the best you can during lockdown and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to chat again afterwards. And I'm going to go out the backyard now and look for the 56th and 57th bird species and I'll let you know. Uh, I'll try my luck here as well. <laughs> <laughs> Good as go. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Peter.